Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. All right, so we're going to continue the Holy Ghost stories. And last week, if you weren't here, we talked about, you know, who is the Holy Spirit and that he is a distinct personality, a part of the Trinity, that he's not a vibe, that he's not just an, uh, this, this positive energy, that he's a distinct personality of the, of the Trinity, the Godhead, and that he has a function and that when, he, when you encounter him, you know that you've encountered him. It's not, oh, if or maybe, I hope so. It's like you have encountered him. In the scriptures, we reflected on all the people that were filled with the Holy Spirit. There was never an if or but. It was, I am filled. We talked about how Samson, as a young man, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible said that he tore that young lion apart with his bare hands through the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you right now? He didn't do that hoping he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He did it knowingly. I'm filled. I haven't been empowered to overcome this right now. We talked about how uh, uh, Gideon, when he blew the trumpet, the Bible says that he was clothed with the Holy Spirit. And in the power and courage of the Holy Spirit, he blew the trumpet. Now, he didn't need that to make the sound in the trumpet. What he needed the Holy Spirit for was the miraculous heavenly outcome that was signified by the blowing of the trumpet. And so today we're going to continue this because I know as a church, we're a Pentecostal spirit-filled church. But a lot of us, we've even grown up in the church and all of this information has been inferred. You've listened to the pastor get up and say, hey, we just need more of the Holy Spirit. We've just got to, you know, draw deeper. And, and after a while, you just think, yep, I sort of know what that means. But there's actually no substance to what you're drawing in on. You're sending the bucket down and it's coming up empty every time. And we're just convincing ourselves that it's more about the lexicon than the reality of the outpouring of the Spirit. So this series is a small one. We're probably going to take more time in the future. I just felt pressed by God to actually share this over the next last week, this week and the week to come, just to get us at least all on the same page when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Because Christianity is a spiritual faith. It is not a, a tradition. It's not a book of rules. Actually, it's a phenomenally writ, uh, written together, authored, designed, intelligently designed uh, uh, narrative of where we've come from, where we are, and where God has called us to go. And so as much as we look at the Bible sometimes and we try to see if is it a scientific document or is it a book of rules, is this the rule book? Actually, it's two things. It's a historical narrative in which it's designed to describe to us all that we need to know. And it's also a love story to describe the love of God for us. Now, we're going to look at this and we're going to take time to go into the whole idea of the Holy Spirit. So we talked about that it's a distinct thing. Last week, we talked about what Jesus had spoken about it and how it's a gift and that it's going to be given from the Father. And so we're going to pick up the series from that point. And I told, I told you last week, I actually wrote more than I needed for last week. So the best part of this is half my sermon was written last week. So I got a, I got a few hours off this week. You know, I'm just, I'm pretty sure I wasted that time. Just, I don't know what I was doing, actually. It's a busy week, but... But I'm excited because as a church, we're a young church. We're 15 months old. God is moving. We're seeing revival. We're seeing people come to Jesus. And I, I love talking to those who have been in church for a long time, and they discuss this reality. I do believe two things are taking place, at least in our city. One is a revival or a reawakening. And the best part of that term is that Christians like, oh, we're praying for a revival. But revival literally means revive. Well, God's not going to revive people that don't believe in him. Revival talks about us as believers having a reawakening to what the scriptures actually mean. Stop living the hypocritical life of coming to church on Sunday. 
telling everyone you're a Christian, but actually not living the scripture in and through the day to day. That's what he wants to revive is some form of power and appreciation and devotion to the word. And then when we use the term awaken, that's for people that have not encountered the the presence, the spirit of God. They haven't encountered the love of Jesus. They're awakened for the first time. So the revival and the reawakening is for the church. The awakening is for the non-believer. I believe that the revival reawakening happens first before we see any great awakening in a nation. We always look, oh, the church is dying. The church is not dying in the sense of people still believe in God. People still believe that Jesus exists. What's dying is the hypocrisy that people don't want anymore. That's what's dying. The church, you know, in the first, in 2 Corinthians 7, 14, this is a famous verse. It says, if my people who are called by my name would pray, seek my face and humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven and I will heal their lands. But it goes on to say, I'll incline my ear and I'll listen. Do you know what I find so amazing about that? Is that straight after Solomon had just dedicated the temple. Israel wasn't going through like terrible things at this moment. The temple had just been dedicated. And what I love is that God, in the presence of the dedication of the temple, he just takes time to stop and go, hey, if something's going wrong right now, if there's something out of whack, revival needs to happen first. My people, called by my name, would pray, seek my face in humility, humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways. You all think when someone says wicked, you just see like a witch in a big cauldron, right? (laughs) Just flew in on her broomstick and here we go, or he did, whatever. But wickedness is not that. He's not saying stop that if you are doing that. It's unhealthy, but... What he's actually saying, wickedness means to live by one's selfish desires, to live by one's flesh. That's what wickedness means. And so when it says, if you would turn from your wicked ways, what he's saying here is if you would stop living from your earthly desire, what fills your flesh, what has to be birthed by the flesh, if you stop doing that, I'm going to give you my spirit that will sustain you, will empower you so you achieve what you need to achieve in the earthly realms and the heavenly realms. Because it's not up and down, it's... Side by side. When Paul writes about heaven, he doesn't write about it as a graduation point. He actually says, because of Christ, heaven is here and now. Jesus has bridged the gap between earth and heaven. It now transcends both ways. He's using the church to transcend heaven and earth. Not that we would be the be-all, end-all dictator of what heaven looks like, but that we would be the conduit in which the spirit would flow so people could encounter heaven day in, day out in their workplace, where they take their kids to school if they're waiting in transit, that his people would be present. Therefore, when the Bible says what we would do more miracles than Christ, it's because when Jesus released the power through asking the Father that the Holy Spirit would come and it would dwell in inside us and be God not just next to us but God inside us Jesus multiplied himself a billion times over of course we're going to do more he knew that why because Jesus went being one representation on earth to now over two billion representations on earth that's how our God works in the spirit because only he could birth such an exponential outcome and so we're going to look at this everyone's like wow that was a long tangent (laughs) that was all from the head too I need to get back to my notes We're going to look at what was Jesus talking about when he said the promise of the Father. He said there's a promise of the Father. See, Jesus told them to wait for the promise of the Father. He, being Christ, identified this as the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's called the promise 
Because at the end of the day, and you need to understand this, that the outpouring is from God the Father. That's why it's called the promise. And Jesus taught about this. So all the disciples already knew about this. This is what would take place. And this is what Jesus was foreshadowing through his death, uh, resurrection, and, and reteaching after the, the, the 40 days after, uh, before ascending to heaven. He knew that he would go and ask the Father, and the Father would send the Spirit. It's called a baptism to remind us, it was to remind the disciples of John the Baptist's prophecy. So when Jesus, and you can read about this in the four Gospels, when Jesus went to get baptized, it's a pretty famous scripture, John the Baptist, what does he say? I'm not worthy to do this. Now, as much as we look at that and go, okay, it's because John knew that Jesus was the Messiah, not a Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one, the source of all anointing. He didn't feel worthy to baptize him. Actually, though that was probably a big part of the whole story, what he was actually focusing in on is that John is saying, I baptize in the physical realms, but what you are going to do is baptize in the spirit. And because of that, I can't baptize you. That's what he was actually saying. But Jesus then says, no, you've got to baptize me because first has to come the acceptance of Christ so that the outflowing of the Spirit can take place, which is the baptism of the Spirit, which Jesus brings. This is when he says the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. I love this because now Jesus becomes the great baptizer in the Holy Spirit. So we need to understand in this illustration that I'm trying to pull out for you right now, that when Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, his job is to be the baptizer. So each and every time someone comes to Jesus, Jesus goes to the Father and say, this person is now identified in me. They're covered by my, my, my sacrifice. They've been born again. They've been paid for. And he asked for the Father in that time to release the Spirit so that he could baptize you. So the illustration is this. We all see the Godhead, right? And if you've been in church long enough, you would have heard a lot of people trying to explain this, like water, steam, ice, Godfather, Holy Spirit. Oh, I got that all mixed up anyway. Or like boiled egg, easy over, scrambled egg, whatever. You try to say, oh, it's all the same thing but different forms. It's not exactly how it works, but I get in the, in the concept of, Austra uh, Australia, of, of English and trying to bring the narrative together to explain it. I guess that's a good way of trying. But I'm going to try to explain it in a way that will make a little bit more sense when it comes to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So if the Father is the source of the outpouring, then the river flows from him, that river being the Spirit. To be baptized in the Spirit, one must come to Jesus because he waits in the river. This is an illustration for you. He waits in the river so that through him, you'd then have to yield to him. First, you yield to Jesus. And when you yield to him, he can then baptize you in what is already flowing from the Father because he asked it for you. Now, the, the key concept here is yield. When in Australia, give, uh, yielding signs actually say give way. You've got to give way. So when we first came here and it said yield, I was like, that's so noble. It has a yield. <laughs> I shall not yield, which actually happens a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You look at the, 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 the three-way yielding spot here, the stop signs. Um, the weird thing I find interesting about this is that the amount of people who don't come to a complete stop, they just... Uh, right? They just like, there's a little bit of part of them is like, I am not going to fully submit to the authority of that red stop sign <laughs> in the hope that I'm going to save some fuel. And then we call him the chief. The chief sits there in an unidentified police vehicle and when at the end of the month when he needs to make his quota, 
kid you not, the boys and I, we'll sit here, we'll drink coffee, and we'll watch him sting one person after the other. He, he is a respecter of no one. If you're on a bicycle and you run that stop sign, <laughs> we have watched him absolutely chase down a bike, and it's always over the top. It's like, and this guy's like, what is going on? What's worse is the guys cheer. They're like, yeah, the chief. We give him coffee, because we know at some point that could be us. <laughs> and we hope the chief shows us mercy. You've got to completely yield before he can baptize you. Why? Because he's going to immerse you completely in the spirit. When I baptize someone, and I pray that if you haven't been baptized yet and you're a follower of Jesus, that you would register to be baptized this coming Sunday, because I'd love to do that. But there's a, there's a moment where you're in the water... And you're yielding to the fact that you're hoping that in the backward motion, unless you're like, you know, Jackie Chan or something like that, the weight of the water requires me to help you get back out. You're yielding to the fact that I'm going to help you be pulled out of the water. In the same sense, you yield to Jesus so that he can baptize you and release you into the service of his kingdom, now empowered through the Holy Spirit. It's not the fluid like water but it's the influence that we're talking about here. The Holy Spirit allows you to operate in a greater influence. One of the things that we encounter regularly, and it's actually quite a normal thought. Honestly, it is. But I do need to make sure that we correct it this morning, if you've had this thought, that is the Holy Spirit is not separate from God. So it's not like he sends it and now the Holy Spirit's not in heaven. He doesn't send it out and go, Holy Spirit, go and I cut you off. Where's my dad? My dad's here. He's an amazing man. Uh, but my dad is, uh, is uh, an amazing... You guys would say East Indian, hey. Is that a thing here? East Indian? Yeah? Because, yep, yep, that's right. When I got here and they were like, oh, so you're East Indian. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> I live on the East Coast. But my dad, and, and he would testify to this, in the Indian culture, you do something upset your parents and it's really bad. They cut you off. Isn't that right, Dad? It's true. When you said yes to Jesus, for a while, they cut you off. Why? Because that's how, that's how we, we perceive it. Like, you're not a part of this anymore. The Holy Spirit does not get cut off the moment he leaves heaven. He's in heaven. He's God present. He's past, present, and future to come. He has all the same empowered uh, uh, attributes and characteristics as the Father and the Son. They work in unison to create God as we know it. It's important that you know this so that when we talk about it, the spirit that is within us is no less of him in heaven. That he's in heaven, that he's in the church, and just as importantly, he's in our hearts. He dwells within us. God is still the, the, the outpourer, the giver of the spirit. Jesus is still the baptizer, and the spirit is what dwells within us. The other thing you need to know is the church is not a reservoir that received one big donation of the Spirit and now we're rationing it out. Could you imagine that? Yeah, well, we are now in the army and the service of the Lord and we're going to give you a little ration of the Holy Spirit. You're going to get a potato, Thomas. You can have some beans, Andrew, a little bit of rice, but only for the week and then you come back on Sunday and... The pastor who's in charge of rationing will figure out if you've been good enough to give you some more. Imagine, that's a ridiculous notion, hey? Yeah. This is the weird thing I find about church. 
Though that's, we would find that ridiculous, we literally live like that, where we don't feed ourselves during the week. We like go without proper food for six days and we turn up for our ration given out by the pastor and then we live off that for the rest of the week. That's not what God intended. He intended that you would read your, his scripture through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and that, that, that the Holy Spirit would talk to you constantly about the redemptive work of the baptizer known as Jesus so that you would have a living, engaging, forever growing relationship, not just in your own world, but you would have influence over the worlds that you live in. That's what he wants. And that's why I always say, just feed yourself. I get that on a Sunday we come together for a bit of a banquet. It's fun. It's good. God wants us to be together. We're going to talk about that soon. But at the end of the day, we're not a reservoir. He did not pour one blob and that's it. What he's actually saying, and he talks about this when he meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan lady. He says, actually, if you draw from me, you'll never thirst again. That water doesn't run dry. That's what he's saying. That well is, is infinite. It goes forever. Who here has been to Ground Zero in uh, New York? And they have the infinity pools. It's phenomenal how you can't see the bottom, right? And just the imagery and the symbolism there. And then you're moved by the sacrifice that took place. I love that place because it reminds me of Jesus. It reminds me. He's like this sacrifice takes place so that the well that is infinite could be accessible. That's what he means. That's what he was saying to this woman. That's why she's profoundly changed. That's why she goes. And, you know, I heard a great friend mention this. You know, the Bible says that he asks her, you know, who are you with? And he's like, I'm with this man. I've had five other husbands. So she's with this sixth guy. And he makes this correlation, and, and he's a phenomenal preacher. And he says this. Isn't it incredible that if, if six is humanity in all of its strength in, in biblical numbers, seven is the number of completion. It's the godly number that in all that she had done, she had she'd gone through six men. But the seventh man she encountered, being Christ, wow. was the man of completion in her life, was the God of completion in her life. He brought her full circle and he restored her. No matter what she had done before, he didn't care. It was come as you are because it was about what he could do for her, not what she could do for him. Wow. And she leaves there, changed the Bible, says so she starts a revival. Wow. She begins to revive those who had been looking for the Messiah. There's more to it, is my next point. See, what happened on the day of Pentecost, and if you're new to uh, church, uh, I'm going to give you a quick rundown how this works. So we have the Old Testament, which is the foreshadowing of Christ. We then have the intertestamental period, which is about 400 years. We see the, the Maccabees are written in that. You can read about the Maccabees if you want. Uh, but the Maccabean Revolution took place. There was a revolt against the Greeks. There was a subdual. This is where the Pharisees came from and the Sadducees. This is where they got their authority because when everyone else turned away from the things of God, the Pharisees were the ones that fought back in the Maccabean Revolution to protect the preciousness and the purity of the altar. So when Jesus arrives, the, the Pharisees are not just people that are in charge. They are the ones that had laid down their life to protect the altar. It gives you a little bit of a different picture of who they are. So you can now see why they're so protective of Judaism, of the belief system, because for 400 years, their brothers who believed had died to protect it. So Jesus turns up and he says to them, I'm going to destroy the temple and three years, three days I'm going to rebuild it. They're like, no way. Not even the Greeks could do that. I'd like to see you try. That's their stance towards Christ. This is what's taken place. Jesus comes. 
He disciples these men. He does ministry for three and a half years. And then he lays his life down, willingly goes to the cross, dies, and in three days is resurrected, defeating death. And then he is ministering in his resurrected body for 40 days. And in these 40 days, he tells them that you need to wait in Jerusalem because the gift of the Father is coming. And then what happens is they go wait there, 120 of them in an upper room, and then the Holy Spirit turns up, and it's called the day of Pentecost. We're all caught up? Cool. But though the word baptism is used to describe Pentecost, it's not the only word to describe what took place on the day of Pentecost. See, the Bible is, it often uses very different or a variety of figures of speech to help us somehow in our human mind contemplate what was taking place from different aspects of experience and relationship. So, for instance, the scripture calls the church the bride, the wife, a body, a building, a temple, a vineyard, a vine, a pillar, an assembly of citizens. Not one of those figures of speech is adequate to describe the church in its entirety. In the same way we think of the term Christian, we, we, we are used in the Bible to describe us as sons and daughters, heirs, adopted, born again, new creation, ambassadors, servant, friend, brothers, sisters. And once again, not one word is adequate to describe what it means to be a Christian. So taking that that whole concept and applying it to to the day of Pentecost, I'm going to just take a little bit of time right now to describe to you what the Bible actually calls and helps us with the amount of different terms it uses to give us an understanding. Because I need you to know that there's more to it than meets the eye. There's more to it for us today than a simple one-off interaction. And this is how it looks. So the Bible does indeed call it a baptism. But it also says that we are filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. It also says it was a pouring out of the Spirit upon them, just as the prophet Joel had prophesied. It said it was a receiving of a gift. That's in Acts 2. It was a falling upon. It was a pouring out of the gift. And it was a coming upon. With all these terms used, it is impossible, it really is impossible, to suppose that the baptism refers to something different from a filling or that Pentecostal experience was limited to one day on Pentecost. That is not a conclusion you can draw when you read the book of Acts. If you have drawn that conclusion, you have robbed yourself of a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life with Jesus here and now. You're forever living in the mythology of what was and never living in the influence of what is. Once again... We look at this and the term baptism and we can take another journey down the comparison with John. See, John says this, that he would continue to baptize as long as people come to him. This is, the, this is John the Baptist. And in the same thought and the same vein, you can draw the conclusion, and it's true, that Christ will continue to baptize those who come to him. He didn't do it once for 120 people 2,000 years ago. He is the eternal baptizer. His job is to wait in the river to baptize you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to immerse you as you yield to him in the full embodiment of God and his calling and his purpose and his destiny on your life. He's not here to rob you. He's not here to steal from you. He's not here to reject you. He's actually here because he knows what's good for you. 
He knows what's, where you're heading. He knows where you've come from. I love that interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees because they're upset with him because he healed somebody. And he makes this comment. He says, you don't know where I've come from. You don't know where I'm going. He's like, you don't even know where you've come from or where you're going. But he says, I know where I've come from. I know what I'm here for and I know where I'm going. This is the thing. When we say yes to Jesus, he knows where you've come from. He knows where you are right now as you've come as you are. And more importantly, he knows where you should be going. Because where you should be going is what was written over your life. That's where your power and influence is. Not necessarily where you think you want to be. I have been found in many occasions in my life where I thought I wanted to be somewhere. I fought hard for it. I invested into it. And when I arrived there, it's not what I wanted. It carried more pain than I thought. And I would look back and go, what a sacrifice for no reason. All because I thought something was good for me. And then there's those moments in life where I followed God and it's been a little bit harder than I wanted to. It's taken more time. I've had to invest more. I had to be allowed to be pruned a little bit. I've had to relinquish a bit more control. And then I've arrived at a place that I didn't know I was going to arrive. And it was perfect and it was beautiful and it was filled with life and it was filled with courage and I was emboldened. But none of that I knew of previously to starting the journey with Jesus. And that's the thing. We so desperately want to be in charge. We so desperately want to be, well, Lord, I'm going to follow you as long as you give me that four-bedroom home, that Tesla, because they're awesome cars. You're going to give me a beautiful wife, which she has. It's gorgeous. I tell people all the time, man, if you're a dude and you're single, come to church. Because no matter how you look, you can be a brown, chubby guy. And you still end up with someone beautiful. It's like, it's like somehow God just shows people like me grace. I have a, my, lead, my lead pastor says, Ben, you know, some people punch above their grade. I was like, thank you. He says, you pole vaulted. <laughs> uh, I'm not that harsh on myself, don't worry. My ego can take a beating. It's got a lot to beat. Jesus continues to baptize people. It wasn't just the day of Pentecost. It was an important part of Pentecost that I want to talk about, actually, because this will help you understand why we have the day of Pentecost and why we shouldn't live trying to reenact it each and every Sunday, because that's not what we've been asked to do. And this is why. So Jesus said, hey, you need to wait. Uh, he used the word, uh, the translation, and I prefer this translation because it's, it's an older translation, but it gives us a good size. It says, Jesus commanded them to tarry, sit and wait, not depart from Jerusalem because the promise was coming. This was a, necess- it was a necessity for them to wait in Jerusalem. There was, no, uh, there was no necessity to stay in Jerusalem after Pentecost. It doesn't say you should wait after the day of Pentecost. It just, Jesus said, I want you to tarry, I want you to sit and wait in Jerusalem for what the Father has promised. It's a one-off thing that's about to take place. See, we sit and we think, oh, we've got to wait every Sunday for what, what Jesus commanded them. And it's not true because what he's talking about is slightly different, but it impacts our life. And it's good to know because it's going to, it's going to be what explains why we do what we do. See, the day of Pentecost for us, uh, with its symbolism of harvest, was important. 
because it was that purpose of the baptism in the Spirit that was to empower us into the service of the kingdom, especially into the harvest fields of the world. You can read about that in Acts 1 to 8. Sorry, Acts 1 verse 8. This was not a time for preparation. So when these guys went up into the room, they weren't, they weren't spending their days preparing. They were waiting. They had already been prepared. How do we know that? Because Jesus in the 40 days before ascending into heaven spent them actually preparing them for Pentecost. And we read about this right across the Gospels. He taught them. He dealt with Peter, the apostle. He, re, 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 uh, uh, sorry, he restored Peter. He recommissioned all of them. He told them not to start their ministry until they were endowed, clothed with power. Why did he do all this? He, he made them ready, but he also wanted them to understand a distinct moment had to take place. So they realized that what was about to be birthed, called the church, wasn't of any human enterprise, but was of the spirit. John writes about this. I tell you this to you all the time because I want you to get it into your spirit. What you birth in the flesh has to be sustained by the flesh. And what is birthed through the spirit is sustained by the spirit. We know for a fact that the physical age is coming to an end. Your body will pass away. But the spiritual age is eternal. Therefore, we would love to submit to what is eternal and heavenly powered, not what is temporary. So if you birth it in your flesh, you got, and Jesus was not going to trust us to run the church in our flesh. He wants us to know that the church is his, empowered by the Spirit. It wasn't going to be uh, developed or, or grown from their own human ingenuity. They weren't going to be the ones to figure out how to spread the gospel. I told this to the 9 a.m. and said, you, do you know the most educated of all the disciples was Judas? He was the most educated he was a zealot. The histories of the zealot is phenomenal, but he's the most educated. And he was the one who struggled most, not with the love of Christ, but the way Jesus did things. He couldn't comprehend how Jesus was destroying the temple and rebuilding it. He didn't understand it. He didn't get his head around the message of love, that love is our weapon. We're not using stones and sticks and swords anymore. We're going to be using the love of Christ. That we're going to live a living sacrifice, laying our life. He didn't like this. He wanted to see Rome overthrown. He wanted to see Jesus call down the heavenly armies, which he could have at any moment, and lay waste to Rome. See, at the end of the day, the church was not to be birthed through some person's intellect. It was not meant to be. Uh, uh, it was not meant to be spread through some person's strategy. It was to be done through the Spirit in your own life. You are not meant to figure out your life through some sort of academia, higher thinking of your own self, your own criticisms of yourself. You are actually to partner your voice, your aspirations, your desire with the Spirit, and allow Him to speak to you and direct you. He will give you a better outcome. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have a thought or a voice. It does mean, however, that you need to accept that his ways are higher than yours ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He knows more than you, and that's okay. It's okay. He knows more than me. He knows more than your teachers. And he does it all through love. So they spent their time waiting, praying, in supplication, joining together in one accord. They were already united with one in Christ. We know this. It says this in Acts 
They were still filled with great joy. They would spend the morning and evening praying. You know, Luke actually talks about the fact that all these guys actually, they would go to the temple. They had already been transformed before waiting in the upper room. What I find interesting is that they remained in one accord. They were up there a long time, 120 of them. We just went to a church planning uh, conference on the weekend and uh, some of our team came and the boys all stayed in what was like a, like a fancy barn, all on the top upper room level, quite godly. But when I met them all for the next day, the first thing they described to me was what annoyed them the night before. Oh, they just wouldn't go to sleep. You know, some people need to put more clothes on when they're walking around. Luke makes weird noises when he's sleeping. (laughs) You know, it's just instantly, within 24 hours, they probably only spent a few hours of sleep in the upper room together. That first thing off their lips were like, I would not want to do that again. Right? He's just like, okay, but these guys spent a long time together. If they had not been revived, awakened, resurrected before this moment in Christ... They wouldn't have survived up there together. You need to know this. This is not a moment of preparation. Jesus had done the work already. They were in, in obedience and in, and in yielding, waiting for what Jesus said was coming. They were waiting for the baptism and the endowment of power that Christ had promised them. So two things took place. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. The Bible says this. It says uh, that the, there was a, there's a... There's no real, uh, and we don't want to overdo this, but there's no necessary distinction between how the Holy Spirit interacted with the saints in the Old Testament and how Paul and the, and the apostles write in their epistles. They don't write as if the Holy Spirit is different in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. It's, it's the same Holy Spirit. You need to know this. He's the same God. If you ever hear someone say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament in relation to how he operates his substance and his heart and love towards humanity, that's incorrect. So the Holy Spirit mentioned when he was in the temple or in, in, empowered the saints of old is the same Holy Spirit that Paul and the other apostles write about in their epistles. But there is a correlation between the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to the day of Pentecost. And this is what I need you to really grasp upon because this will set us up as a church as we continue down the pathway of being spirit-led and spirit-fed. There were signs preceding Pentecostal Sunday of the outpouring that connected it with the Old Testament experiences and as well as with what the Old Testament had promised. See, the, the day of Pentecost was an Old Testament day of the Harvest Festival. Pretty interesting, hey? It marked for us as a church the long-awaited spiritual harvest that would begin. But first, the outpouring of the Spirit came in two unusual signs, which gives further connection to the Old Testament. The Bible says that first came a sound. They were up in the upper room waiting for him. The outpouring of the Spirit. And first came the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Though there was no actual wind, The sound filled the house. See, in the Old Testament, the wind was a frequent symbol of the Holy Spirit. The fact that the sound was mighty tells us it was carrying a special power. And that power 
wasn't just to breathe regeneration into a, into new, uh, and bring us into a new life. It was to empower us for the service of the kingdom. That's what it was. It wasn't just to, re, to revive us, to reawaken us. It was to empower us. The Holy Spirit has come to empower you. He has come to make you somebody that can actually achieve what God's called on your life through His Spirit, not through your own strength. The second thing was that the Bible says that appeared cloven tongues like as a fire and each sat upon each of them on their heads. Cloven means distributed. So, so to, to paint a picture for you, what actually happened is that a, like a collective fire entered the room, like a spiritual fire, visible. And it then divided up and fell upon each and every one of them. This is what took place. The word cloven, and I like using this. I, I talked to my friend Yitzi before about this. But, you know, the Bible says that cloven would mean, they're talking about the, the animal's hoof, right? Cloven hoof. What does it mean? Separated. And the Jews weren't allowed to, the Israelites weren't allowed to eat animals with cloven. It was, it was unclean. It was forbidden. It's, it's interesting correlation here because before Jesus... The Spirit wasn't able, without His sacrifice, to be distributed, distributed through so many people at one time. But because of Jesus, we see what was once impossible become now possible through His sacrifice. So what once was in one now can be multiplied. So it used to be God with us, which is cloven, separated, but still there, to God in us. So what was once unclean is now clean. What was once impossible is now possible. And what was not allowed before is now open doors for us. This was not a baptism of fire. It wasn't about judgment. It wasn't about cleansing. That had been done by Jesus already. This was a significant moment in time because it ties into the Old Testament. And and I I really do believe I want you to get a hold of this. In the Old Testament, it records the progressive development of worship in regards to God. And so we see Abraham build an altar, turns into the tabernacle, right? And the Bible says when that was completed, that the fire of God came upon it. First place of worship. And then we fast forward hundreds of years and Solomon, who gets the great privilege through the investment of his father, King David, completes and builds the temple of God, which the Bible says, and even history dictates, was one of the most beautiful buildings humanity has ever created to the glory of God. And the Bible says as soon as that was finished, that the fire of God came upon it. But see, that temple was destroyed and rebuilt several times. And each time it was rebuilt, That fire didn't come upon it. Why? Because the temple wasn't necessarily about the building now. It was about how God was going to interact with His people through worship. And then we fast forward to the day of Pentecost. And what happens? The Spirit comes in like a rushing wind, a mighty sound to empower us. But then the same fire that positioned itself over the altar and tabernacle, the same fire that positioned itself over the temple of Solomon, and the same fire that was present on the day of Pentecost, all signified that once was where the tabernacle was the presence of God, the the temple was the presence of God, but now the church is the presence of God. 
That's why it's not going to happen again, because we're not going to get destroyed and rebuilt. What happened was the Spirit lit the flame of the church, and the Bible says that it's set corporately for a while to signify that the church, the body, is now the temple, but then it's split off individually to signify you, the person sitting next to you, that myself, even Karis, is now the temple of God. I love you, Karis. It's not even Karis, especially Karis. You're a way better human being than me. Do you get the, this is significant. You need to understand, believer, this morning that the Old Testament is not irrelevant, but it illuminates the path for the coming Christ and that Jesus took time to show you I was there in the the beginning. I'm here present right now and I'll be forever in your future. He illuminates it. So the same fire is present right now. So when we say yes to Jesus, when we yield, and when He goes and asks for the the promise from the Father in your life, when He baptizes you by you giving Him your will, He allows you to have that same encounter. Not that we would need a Pentecost moment right now, but you would have a Spirit-filled moment, which we call the baptism. If you haven't been, and like I said, you'd know if you had, baptized in the Holy Spirit. You can do that at any time. The Bible says, ask, seek, knock, find. You'll find it. He says, just be persistent in it. As a church, we want to create space and make time for this. And so we're going to worship again. And, and you can push into God and you can ask him, God, right now I'm here. I'm asking. I'm seeking. I'm desperate for your empowerment. And at the same time, next week, we're going to be baptizing people in our, our, our night service. We don't do this regularly, but we want to baptize you, like properly baptize you in water so that you signify and you identify that you accept that you, with Christ, have died, resurrected, and been born into a new creation. That's the baptism of water. But at the same time, we're going to pray for people going, I want that distinct baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to feel that power, that same power that raged through Samson and Gideon and Deborah, the same power that resurrected Christ from the grave. I want it. And if you don't want that right now, then you haven't read your Bible because he said that's the good gift. That's the gift of all gifts. That's the gift above any other thing outside of salvation. because of salvation, the Father can give you the perfect gift. So when we say he's a good, good Father, why? Because he gives the perfect gift in the Spirit. Church, you ready to worship? Ready to give God some glory right now? Let's do that. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.